the other day and I typed holy people into the search engine to see what kind of pictures came up. Now, these are some of the top images you would get that show us apparently what the world, what many think of when they think of holiness, when they think of people who are holy. So first of all, some of the top images were pieces of art that portray holiness as these kind of saints with heavenly glows around them. Uh, Another top images were things like people like this, people like His Holiness, you know, the Pope or nuns who were seen as holy. And we even, there was even pictures there of supposed holy people from different religions like a a Hindu guru or, or somebody like that. But what does it actually mean to be holy? What does it actually look like to be holy? Uh, Is it just a title that we give someone like the Pope? Is that what it's about? Uh, Because so often we come to these images, these ideas of holiness, that in some way holy is about being special. It's about being, you know, that uber spiritual in almost a a mystical type sense with a halo around your, your head, that kind of thing. Or we might picture holiness as these people, holy people, as these people who have lives that, around us that seem to be just oozing more than others with good works and perfect actions. Uh, but this morning, as we finish off the book of Haggai, it helps us to understand what true holiness is. And more to the point, where we go to seek holiness, where true holiness comes from. But even before we get to Haggai, it's vital to be reminded that holiness, so an understanding of holiness, which is very much a biblical word that isn't used much elsewhere, a true picture of holiness, it has to start with God. The one, the one who was, the one who is, the one who remains 100% holy. I mean, we just sung about it in the last two songs. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Those are words of praise about God from the book of Revelation. So what does holy mean when we say holy, God is holy? Well, at its most basic level, to be holy, the word means to be set apart. Our God is holy because he, more than anybody, is 100% set apart. He's 100% set apart, 100% different in his perfection. God is set apart... He's holy in that he is never stained by sin. He's always 100% pure. And with that in mind, we also see that through Scripture, our 100% holy God, he calls to himself a chosen people who he wants to be holy also. He says God's people will be his holy people. That means God's people will be people who are set apart for God. Uh, We see it back in the Old Testament with the Israelites. We get verses like this. Leviticus 11.45 says, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. Again in Leviticus, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. But as we get to the New Testament, God's holy people changes from the nation of Israel to people who trust in Jesus. And this is what we see described again in the New Testament. 1 Peter 1.15 says, But just as he who called you is holy, 
So be holy in all you do. That's speaking to us as his people. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So what this is saying is just like the Israelites in the Old Testament, just like the Israelites that we see today that God spoke to through, through the prophet Haggai, we too, as Christians, are called to be holy. We're called to be set apart for God. And so the question is, what does it mean to be set apart? What does it look like to be holy? Where does that start? Because as I said earlier, I think when we consider this, when we consider what it means for us to be holy, we, we know that at some time, I think we know that it has something to do with living holy lives. And we go, therefore, it has something to do with doing the right thing, living the right way. But so quickly, that idea of holiness being doing the right thing can morph into a very wrong and dangerous idea of holiness, where it becomes more of a, a it can become more of a self-righteous, even possibly an arrogant picture of a Christian where holiness has this kind of extra spiritual or mystical aura to yourself. Do you know what I mean? Where we, we, we often count, you can sometimes encounter those Christians who, who promote this type of, well, look at me, I'm, I'm deeper with God than all of you, kind of holiness. Pharisees, Pharisees. we'll get to them later. <laughs> and, we can so, and when we see that, when people act like that, when maybe even people here are guilty of acting like that, we can start second-guessing what true holiness is. Especially we start second-guessing where we actually go, where we start to seek holiness, what we do to seek holiness. You know, and we say, oh, am I missing something? Why am I not feeling or looking like that holiness like others do? Well, this morning in Haggai, uh, there are some challenging words here. There's some hard words, and I hope they encourage you, but I also hope that uh, for some of us they might rebuke us. But my prayer, more than that, is that these words from Haggai will help guide all of us to seek true holiness in the right place. In God, for God, and from God. Okay, so let's get to it. In verses 10 to 19 of Haggai 2, this is the third time in, in the, prophet, the, the prophet Haggai that God has spoken through the prophet Haggai to the Israelites. We, we've seen over the last two weeks, we saw the other two times that God spoke through Haggai. Uh, two weeks ago, the first time, he challenged the Israelites to get their priorities in order, to begin serving him, seeking his glory instead of their own. And they were to do that, the Israelites were to do that by building his temple, the symbol of his presence. And then we saw last week, from that, we saw the Israelites, God saw that the Israelites were disappointed in what they were building they were disappointed at the current state of the temple that they'd rebuilt. But he reminded them that the important thing was that in their obedience to him, true blessing wasn't about the temple itself. It was about his presence in their lives. So he said, kept, we saw last week, he said, keep on working, keep going, be strong, do not fear. Why? Because the ultimate blessing that you have is I am with you. Get your priorities in order. Serve me, glorify me, and the blessing is I am with you. But today, in the third word of God through Haggai, 
We, we reach this first bit that Anna read out, and it seems to get a bit obscure, doesn't it? God begins, and God knows the answer, you've got to remember that. God begins by asking these strange questions about the law. These questions about laws to do with cleanliness and, and food and, and sacrifice. Take a look again, verse 10 to 30. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated, consecrated meat in the fold of their garment and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. So it might seem like strange questions here in the middle of all these huge things that that God is telling his people here. But at the heart of it, God is actually asking a question about the purity of, about the the holiness of God's people and how that actually happens. So first up, we see he asked that question, if you have consecrated meat, so holy meat that was someone was heading up to the temple to sacrifice it, and they instead of having a big plate, they would have tucked it in their robes and carried it around in their garment. If it touched something else that was in amongst all that, like bread or wine or olive oil or something like that, he's saying if that holy meat touches the bread, does the bread become holy as well? And they know from the, the, the Torah, they know from the Bible that the answer is no. And what he's saying there is holiness isn't contagious like that. But then he flips it and he says, on the other hand, similar question about defilement, about unholiness, uncleanliness. And so in Jewish society, Jewish culture, one of the, the most unclean things that could happen to you was to touch a dead body. It would make you unclean for a whole week. So the question is asked, okay, so if a person is defiled, if they're unclean, they're unholy because they've touched a dead body, if they then go and touch that bread or that wine, does that that bread or wine, does it become unholy? Does it become defiled as well? And according to the law, yes, it becomes unholy. It becomes unclean. Where is he getting at? Why is he asking these weird questions? Well, we see it in verse 14. where God is going with these questions. Then Haggai said, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. So God is challenging the Israelites' perception or understanding of holiness. He wants to make sure that even though as they obediently now build the temple... He wants to make sure, sure no, that they haven't missed the point. He's explaining to them that they, they can go now and they can work and they can rebuild the temple. They can set up a, a lovely new altar. They can bring holy meat and sacrifices to God. They can reinstate all of that religious ceremony. But he's saying, but it does not make them pure. It will not make them holy if the rest of their lives, if their hearts are still full of impurity and unrepentant sin. So he says, first of all, don't, don't ever think that, that when you do something that looks godly, that, that seems to be holy, especially to others around you, that in some way it's going to cover or spread or make up for the rest of your life. 
It's not how it works. So, for example, he's saying to the Israelites, stop coming up to the temple to pray and worship me. Stop coming up to give ritual sacrifices and then turn around and go home and think that those little good works that you're doing up here at the temple, those holy things, those religious things, they're just going to cover a life that continues to sin. God says, no, that's the wrong way of looking at it. That's not how it works. And he says here in, in these questions, he says, actually, in fact, it's the other way around. He's saying to the Israelites that if you live lives over here of impurity and unrepentant sin in the normal day day to day, when you continue to do that and then you come up to my temple, to my presence, and you perform these religious rituals, they mean nothing. He says, in fact, you're just spreading your sinfulness in my presence. You're spreading your defilement and your unholiness around. Pretty hard words, but God is saying to the Israelites, good works, religious acts, they don't make up for your sin. What he's saying here is religiousness is not holiness. Holiness and religiousness are not the same thing. And as Heinz pointed out earlier, it's the very thing that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for. The Pharisees in Jesus' day, they were seen, weren't they, as the pious people. They were seen as the holiest of people. They knew God's word back to front. They did many good deeds. They fasted and prayed more than anyone else. They were up in the temple more than anyone else. But what did Jesus call them? Matthew 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. So this is a challenge. This is a, a possibly a, it's a rebuke that God puts forward for us too in Haggai. Because God is saying to us, I don't want your religion. I don't want you to do these things that you think are holy and godly if the rest of your life has no intention of turning from sin. Uh, this might be really difficult to hear. But really what God is saying, I think, I believe here, is he's saying, and this is God speaking, not me, hear this that clearly, I think God is saying, how dare we come here today even? How dare we pray like we've prayed? How dare we sing like we've singed? How dare we, we do things that are meant to praise God if we go home afterwards and so easily we leave these doors, we re-enter into our sinful life that just forgets what we've said, what we've sung, what we prayed to God for. Now, don't get me wrong, this isn't suggesting that as Christians when we leave this, this, house, this, this um, building, sorry, this, this people of God, that we will just be sinless. It's not saying that. It's not saying that at all. No, this is speaking of the way that we too can be whitewashed tombs like the Pharisees of the way that we're very good at, some of us, at ticking all those religious boxes. So the way we can, some of us can create a lovely Sunday morning, 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock persona. You know what I'm talking about, but our, our holiness is just really a facade for others to see. It's not actually our way of living. It's not actually us considering that God sees everything else that goes on in our life. 
If we desire to be God's holy people, if we desire to be set apart for him, if we desire to live lives that seek his holiness, seeking to live the way that pleases and glorifies him, then Haggai is here is saying to do that, you cannot begin, you cannot start to do that by just painting the exterior of your life. You cannot seek holiness in your life by simply changing, starting by changing the outward behavior and lifestyle. He's saying that that's always going to be a fake, that's going to be a false holiness. It might be convincing for those around you, but ultimately God sees it for the cover-up paint job that it really is. Now, don't get me wrong, good, good works... They are, part, they are a mark of holiness, but the question here is, where do we begin for holiness? We don't begin with an exterior paint job. It isn't just by changing our behaviour and starting to do good things. So where is it that we begin? Well, the next verses in Haggai show us. As we move on to verses 15 to 19, God, as he speaks to Haggai and God's people, he summarises what has already happened to the Israelites in chapter 1 and chapter 2 how they've gone from this unholy people to once again being God's holy people. A people that he would no longer reject. In fact, he says, I'm going to bless you. Take a look at verses 15 to 19. He says this, Now give careful thought to this from this day on. <clears throat> Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there was only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive oil tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. So there's a lot in there, but, but see what God says here, what he's saying about his chosen, his holy people, the Israelites. Uh, you, you might notice that he actually repeats it four times. He says four times, give careful thought. I think sometimes we need that. God continually saying, no, no, stop and give it some thought. He says, stop and think about it. Think about it. Give it careful thought. What, he's saying to them, what brought about this change? What brought about this change from you being an unholy people to a holy people, to my chosen people? For the Israelites to go from a rejected people who have been rejected into exile and captivity, now to a people who are again chosen, holy, and as he says, they're blessed. God says before, he says, you hadn't done a thing to show your heart was for me. That's what he had a goal at them for in chapter 1. You did nothing to show that you were following me. You only had concern for your own wealth and comfort. And because of that, he says, you were always going to be lacking. He says, because of that disobedience, nothing was ever going to be good enough for you. You were never going to find satisfaction. And indeed, he says there, I actually took all that good stuff away from you. But then he says, finally, you return to me. Finally, you geared your heart towards me. 
We see that at the end of chapter 1. Finally, you started doing things, not just to make yourself look good, to look holy, not just to tick religious boxes, but because you finally realized, he's saying to the Israelites, you finally realized, I am what you actually need. You finally realized, I am the one worth following. You finally realized, I am the one worth obeying as your king. And he says here, now that you've done that, now that you've finally turned your hearts to me, now you're going to find blessing. I'm going to bless you. So he summarizes this change in the Israelites over the past few months. And if you go with me for a second back to chapter 1, you see the instant this change happens, how it happens. There's a small phrase that two weeks ago we didn't really get to touch on. It's that time where the Israelites finally decided to obey God, to start rebuilding the temple. They didn't do it because of physical reward. Take a look at verse 12 of chapter 1. It shows that underneath this practical changes and obedience that they made, underneath was a change in heart. Chapter 1, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Do you see what stirs the people here to obedience? Do you see what leads the people to once again act as God's holy people? It says there it's because they feared the Lord. So it means that they once again looked at God and realized actually there's nowhere else to go. They'd forgotten his awesomeness. They'd forgotten his power. They'd forgotten his promises. They'd forgotten his love. We see that they turned to idols. They turned to their own selfish desires. But now they'd rediscovered the majesty and indeed the necessity for God to rule their life, for his glory to be shown. What happened here is their hearts turned back to him. They feared him and the Bible calls that over and over again. The Bible calls this repentance. Repentance is when our hearts fear God and turn back to him in his awesomeness, in his majesty, in his love. When we realize his fearsome power, when we realize his fearsome love, we realize that he is what we truly need, his rescue, his kingship over our lives. And this is the answer for today. Repentance is where we begin if we truly seek to be God's holy people. Repentance is where we begin if we truly seek lives of holiness. Not starting with an exterior paint job to make ourselves look holy in the eyes of others. Not some kind of, we're not looking for some kind of mystical, spiritual experience that will make us look or feel closer to God. No, holiness begins with Holiness being set apart by God for him, it begins with a heart that is repentant. A heart that is cleansed because it confesses that life is only really when he is the centre, when he is the ruler. And so it makes sense here that we get a fourth word from God through Haggai. And this word, it makes sense because this word is, speaks of a king who is going to rule over all. A king that will be worthy to rule over God's people. 
a king that indeed we are to live lives of repentance following him. Uh, We see it in verses 20 to 23. The last few verses of Haggai say, The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. So in this final word in Haggai, on the same day as the word we've just read, God speaks more directly to the leader of the Israelites at that time, Zerubbabel. And here, God seems to suggest that Zerubbabel will become a leader of immense authority, even over the whole world, it seems. And he speaks there particularly of Zerubbabel becoming God's signet ring. Now, the signet ring, as, as many of you will know, was, is a leader's kind of stamp of authority and power. And so it's saying Zerubbabel was to be God's authority, God's power, God's representative. Um, we see it already in the, uh, earlier in the Old Testament. If you go back to the Israelites just before they were exiled, God speaks of another Israelite king as his signet ring. We read in Jeremiah 22, it says, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I will deliver you into the hands of those who want to kill you, those who you fear, Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylon and the Babylonians. So what he's saying there, as a disobedient king of Israel, God speaks of Jehokan as a signet ring too. But in this case, he's a signet, king, signet ring that, that God is going to take off and throw away. He's going to get rid of him and punish him, exile. But now, after the exile, God is again speaking of a signet ring, but he's speaking of putting that signet ring back on. He's speaking of once again reinstating a Davidic king of Israel who will reign with God's authority once again. But is it Zerubbabel? Because after these words in Haggai, we don't really hear about Zerubbabel again. He wasn't even a king, he was a governor, a puppet king in the area. After this, he pretty much disappears from history. He certainly doesn't become this signet ring. He doesn't become a king who rules the world as God's chosen servant and signet ring. However, and I think you'll know where I'm going with this, after about 500 years, one of Zerubbabel's descendants, one of King David's line, is born in a manger. One who is the signet ring. One who is anointed by God the Father. One who did come to shake the heavens and the earth. One who overthrows royal thrones. One who defeated sin and death itself. King Jesus. The king that we see, the king through whom all blessings actually flow. You see, in Haggai we see a people who repent, who once again becomes God's holy people. And God says to them, we saw there in verse 19, he says, because you have repented, because you are my holy people, from this day on, I will bless you. 
for the Israelites in Haggai's time, we see what that blessing was. That blessing was very much about material blessing. We see God suggest there that unlike last time when they planted all their seeds, they'd emptied their barns of all their seeds. He's saying this time you've done it again, this time you're actually going to receive a good harvest. Not like last time. Why? Because you obey me. I'm going to bless you. And in the Old Testament, we see God's people blessed in that way when they repent, when they follow God in obedience. When their hearts are for God, they're blessed, and it's so often in these physical ways. Harvest, bountiful, uh, bountiful living, peace, all those types of things. But when we reach our time, when we reach the New Testament, so when God forms this new covenant with us between himself, between himself and his new holy people through Jesus, the blessings that he offers through Jesus, they're so much better. They're more abundant and they're more eternal. You see, what God offers us through Jesus as his repentant holy people is he offers every spiritual blessing. We read it in Ephesians 1. Paul starts Ephesians 1 with this massive paragraph of every spiritual blessing. And I just want to slow down right now. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. I just want you to listen. I'm going to read it out. There's so much jam-packed. This is what our spiritual blessing is. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. Paul writes this. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then he goes on and he lists a heap of things. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To be put in effect when the time reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under Christ. And it goes on and on here. Go home and read Ephesians 1. It ends like this. It says, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. This is another thing, spiritual blessing. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. So what we see is through Christ, through repentance, through faith in him, we become holy we become god's set apart people ultimately holiness is something we find only in a relationship with jesus true holiness is not found in religiousness true holiness is not found in having an exterior of good works or spiritual discipline if it does not begin if it is not driven by a heart that loves and desires Christ above all else. We are called to be a holy people who have turned to Christ in repentance. That's where holiness begins. And when we come to him in repentance, like the people in Haggai's time, we are blessed 
by him. We are blessed to be made holy through the blood of Jesus as we stand in front of our holy God. We are blessed to be people who have been rescued by our King Jesus. And we are blessed to be people who are living under the loving rule 